You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Dr. Robin Brooks, an associate professor of Africana Studies at the University of Pittsburgh with an impressive record of scholarship that examines a range of cultural matters concerning Black communities in the United States and the wider African diaspora. Primary research and teaching interests for Dr. Brooks include contemporary culture and literary studies, as well as working class studies, black feminist theory, post-colonial studies, digital humanities, higher education management, and education policy. Her research is the recipient of numerous awards, grants, and fellowships, and has been supported by the Ford Foundation, Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, as well as the National Endowment for the Humanities. She has been featured in several news media outlets, including NPR, The Washington Post, Miss Magazine, and the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. In this conversation, we discuss her book, Class Interruptions, where she examines how contemporary writers use literary portrayals of class to critique inequalities and divisions in the U.S. and Caribbean. We are joined by Dr. Keisha Allen, an assistant professor in Black and Latino Studies at Baruch College. She is the recipient of the Anne G. Wiley Dissertation Fellowship and the McKittrick Book Award. Recently graduated with a PhD from the Department of English at the University of Maryland, her broad area of interest is 20th century Caribbean literature. Within this field, she examines Caribbean literature by women writers who critique social and political inequities in their societies. She examines how selected female authors from the Caribbean create fictional worlds that have the effect of subverting patriarchal perspectives and paradigms in their post-colonial societies. So we're here today joined by Dr. Brooks. Welcome. Um, And also welcome Dr. Allen. So before we delve into this book, Dr. Brooks, I wanted to start by asking you the origins of this project, a sort of invitation to narrate us into the project and how you came into it. What sort of concerns, personal, ethical, philosophical, that drew to the questions in class interruptions. And Dr. Jabrinsky, I always mention his name because he's like, you know, the father of the show. <laughs> uh, he always says when you write a book, it takes over your whole life. So how was this for you? Yeah, thank you all, first of all, for having me. And I definitely agree with that, that a book can take over a great deal of your life. And I did not mind that, however, when it came to this book, because my personal story has shaped my interest in a lot of the things that I discuss concerning this book. So 
I'll talk a little bit about that. I was born and raised in Miami, Florida. And people know that Miami is a very diverse city, a very diverse and international space. And oftentimes when people think about Miami, they think about the famous beaches and the famous people. Well, yes, there are a lot of millionaires in Miami, but there are also people living in abject poverty in Miami. The extremes are really great. And then there's everyone in between. So I was accustomed to always seeing these wide differences in class. And even as a child, when I didn't have the language or terminology um, to explain class, different, class differences, excuse me, I was very aware of them. So even though I didn't know that, hey, this is called class and this is what you're, you're witnessing, I was still aware of it. And then, of course, these are things that stayed with me throughout my life. And so as I moved on, moved to other um, states, other cities, other cities, other spaces, I continued to pay attention to issues of class. So even though I wasn't formally studying class, I was still, I was still very much so aware of them. And so I wanted to say that then I want to fast forward to the Great Recession. So during the time of the Great Recession, 2007 to 2009, I noticed an increase in scholarship in social science fields about changes in class. So I wanted to know, well, what were my fields saying about class? So I said, you know, this is something I would like to officially write about in the future. Right. So the overarching question for this book became, how does the field of literary studies, more specifically African diaspora literary studies, participate in these discourses on class change? And I wanted to focus on women writers in particular because I wanted to learn what, if any, interventions these writers are making amid what is often called the feminization of poverty. And that simply means that women are the ones representing the majority of the disenfranchised across the world. And this is something that scholar Diana Peirce came up with this phrasing. And so, so that laid the foundation for my approach and interest to the book overall. That's where the book um, originated from. Okay, great. Thanks so much for sharing that, especially the personal narrative there, what your experiences in Miami. And I think that sheds light on, again, why this book is so important to you and important, again, in discussions on class and cross-class um, relationships. So in this project, you discuss class and speak about how across the field there is an agreement that class does not fit into neat categories. How do you think your project emphasizes what is missing from the conversation? Right. I like that question because I tied this response to the title of my book and the main title was Class Interruptions. And it presents a goal of what I'm trying to do with the book. I am interrupting the lack of scholarship on class in these fields. And I'm emphasizing scholarship 
Because one thing my research shows is that literary artists have long been engaging the topic of class. It's just that the scholarship has not kept up. And of course, there are some great scholars out here who are doing work on class. And my book is um, intersecting with them and building on this. There's still a great deal of room um, left in this particular arena, which is why my book is needed, is necessary, is important. And so this interruption brings attention to inequalities in order to destabilize an unjust status quo. So I want to interrupt this business as usual when it comes to discussions about class or the lack of discussions about class, because class permeates every area of our lives, whether or not we are aware of it. And so my interpretation of the writer's focus on class adds to the literary history on equality and the larger modern historiography of class. And a, a significant feature of the book that I always highlight when I speak with people is that my book facilitates a conversation between the humanities and the social sciences because the literary artists are invested in the same inequality phenomena as social scientists. And I organize the book very strategically around specific types of inequalities that are related to class, including housing, education, sexual violence, and other state-sanctioned abuse. And the book even gets into discussions of human rights violations. Oftentimes people talk about civil rights violations, but what about human rights um, violations? And so these topics did not come from me. These topics actually came from the novels themselves. I analyzed um, the literary work and said, okay, what are the themes that are apparent here? What are the topics and subjects that these um, writers are exploring? And then I went from there. So yes, that's what I would say to that. It's, I think, one of the most underscored statements, because I like how you put it, is um, if you don't know, just pick up a book. <laughs> and while you're saying this, like, it's these literary artists have been making so many things um, evident to us, right? And even while I'm working through this doctorate, and even during my, I was just very, I was like, how? how did we not see this? <laughs> I was like, why are we just now talking about this? Or why hasn't a lot of things been shed um, light on? Even um, Dr. Allen, when you tell me you're, I was just like, that is really fascinating. More things need to be shed. Why do you think, I was just curious, while you're working on this project, why do you think class, something that we are all dealing with, right? Something that's in every part, it affects our lifestyle. Why has the scholarship not shed light into it? Do you think it's because as scholars, our own subjectivities, depending on our own class as well, we overlook it? Or is it something that I'm just wondering, like, why was this not exactly, um, why is it not a thing? Why, why is there not more scholarship and work on this, right? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, I understand it. And there are many reasons for that. One reason I'll say when it comes to studying people of African descent in the United States, um, oftentimes people feel like the genesis is slavery or enslavement, right? 
And so a lot of times people describe, define, discuss slavery as something that created race instead of something that also created class distinction. And so within the United States in particular, race is the big elephant in the room. It's that uncomfortable subject. So that is something that we as a nation, have, we have been grappling with race. So we have not yet <laughs> finished grappling with that, that big thing, right? And so how then can you expect some people to feel like, well, let's talk about some other intersections with race, like class and disability and sexuality, when they're still trying to grapple with um, race, which has been at the forefront of the scholarship, particularly with the Africana studies. And when it comes to work on people of African descent, I just think that that it shows that we have a lot of work to do, you know, a lot of work to do in showing the complexity of not only people of African descent, but our societies, whether it's the United States or other nations around the world. So I think that's one that's one response that some people um, lean towards. But there are many other responses, including the fact that when you just look at class by itself, class is also something that is very difficult to talk about. You know, class can bring about class shame, whether or not you feel that you are in poverty or that you are um, a wealthier class, because people who may have a lot of money may feel a sense of shame that I have these things. And then I know of people who are living in horrible circumstances. So these are things that are tough to grapple with, no matter what side of the spectrum you find yourself um, on. And so I think that class is also yet another difficult, tough um, subject. And we're still trying to grapple with other things. But I'm super happy about the pandemic, you know, highlighting these grave disparities. Finally, finally, these things have been there all along, all along they've been there. And it took a pandemic to help highlight and bring to the forefront a number of these um, disparities related to class injustice. Yes, uh, most certainly the pandemic has highlighted existing inequalities. And that brings me to my next question. So how does your project intervene in discourses on racial capitalism? Right. So I think racial capitalism is a very important. So by racial capitalism, first of all, I just want to clarify that I do not mean some type or kind of capitalism when I say racial capitalism. I'm using that phrase racial capitalism um, over the more familiar term of just capitalism to account for the historical interconnections of capitalism with racial difference or specifically the transatlantic trade in enslaved Africans. Right. Oftentimes this piece um, is a left out of our understanding of Capital, the origins of capitalism. It's like that racial difference, that racial piece is often left out when we discuss capitalism. And so I wanted to situate my book 
within this broader analytical framework of racial capitalism because it allows the book to center and take as a starting point both the historical and present experiences of people of African descent, um, the very people who were simultaneously capital and labor. So Black people were both labor and capital. They were producers and reproducers. So I think it's very important to highlight racial capitalism. And my book builds on this Black intellectual tradition that includes other scholars from both the past and present, such as Eric Williams, C.L.R. James, Walter Rodney, Angela Davis, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Carol Boyce Davies, Robin Kelly, Peter Hudson, um, Barbara Ransby, and so on. So racial capitalism, again, was key to the foundation of my book. Definitely. Great. Thanks so much for sharing that. And again, Class Disruptions, your project features prominent authors of Black diasporic fiction, including Tom, Tony Morrison, Gloria Naylor, Merle Hodge, Diana McCauley, Dawn Tierna, and Olive Senior. So can you tell, tell us a bit about the similarities and the differences in the cross-class relationship trope in the works of these authors? Yeah, first I want to go ahead and explain what I mean about this trope. So a big part of my book is what I'm calling a cross-class relationship trope. And this pairs two characters. It's a literary technique that all of these writers use um, in their narratives where they pair two characters from different class backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And usually um, this pairing is between a working class character and a middle class character. And those two characters are usually close in age or the same and or the same gender. And the authors connect this cross-class pair to a key theme that they are examining within the narrative. So my book is split into two parts, one part on contemporary African-American women writers and another part on contemporary Anglophone Caribbean um, women writers. And so obviously a comparison um, is made between uh, this literature. And so one point of similarity that is just um, essential and key to highlight is that these authors, whether African-American or Caribbean, they use the trope to convey that class disparities are working in comparable and detrimental ways. And so, in fact, they're illustrating that class conflict impedes access to adequate resources for a healthy standard of living, as well as the formation of cross-class alliances. And then they also note that intraracial class division causes further strife within these already marginalized groups of people. Now, a big difference involves the choice of topic or the thematic emphasis by the authors. Um, and that's to be expected, right? Given that the relationship um, there's a, rela a relationship between the literary text and the historical circumstances mm -hmm. in which they are um, produced. But I wanted to give some examples. So say, for instance, um, what I noticed is that when it came to the Caribbean writers, um, 
from the 1970s onward up to today, there has been a shift in terms of writers moving away from um, topics or themes that depict the novelty of independence for nations. And in particular, um, my book focuses on Jamaica and Trinidad and Tobago. And these were the two Caribbean nations that were among the earliest to get um, their independence. And so many people now, many of these Caribbean writers now, they have moved away from that and they're now probing the failure of Caribbean nations to realize full citizenship or equal opportunities for all people in the decades following independence. So their critique has moved from exploring how are we going to um, evolve as a, a newly independent nation? What are the challenges before us? What, what are um, the great hopes before us? They're moving away from that to now that um, we've been independent for a, a bit of time, why, why are there some um, holes in this um, independence project in terms of making sure that the livelihoods or the standard of living in general for people, for all citizens, why, why isn't that better? And so they're probing that and critiquing that particular topic. Now, when it comes to the African-American writers, something very interesting that I found with them is that they greatly intensify the scrutiny of intra-racial stratification. That means um, the, the conflict and the class differences between Black people. And they um, challenge the myth or the elusiveness of the American dream. Because why is it that so many Black people are finding themselves being excluded from or not being able to fully partake in this idea of what is the American dream. And with the African-American writers, they intensify this scrutiny of the intraracial stratification saying that um, Black people need to continue to be mindful of a level of unity so that they can always um, unite together in a sense to fight um, the greater injustices that are taking place within a larger um, society of the United States. So those are some examples of some differences um, that the writers explore. And as you can see, those differences are directly tied to what's going on in their particular environments, what's associated with those particular um, nations and people of African descent in those nations. Yeah, so definitely. Thanks so much for that. And you can definitely see that the different geopolitical histories impact these sort of cross-class relationships. So. Right, right. It's, um, I think, the first part to which you were speaking to the Caribbean um, writers, I just pulled it up because it reminded me when you were talking about Dog Heart um, by um, Macaulay's novel and how you made this point, which we really do need to remind ourselves about how these structural adjustment programs that have been given to you know these lending policies of like human rights 
this double-edged sword. <laughs> um, I never say that term right, by the way. Sorry, it's sword. I've been corrected by my friends so many times. but <laughs> So this, you know, double-edged sword in terms of, yes, it's human right activism, but is it really? And how really it's violation to a large extent that keeps most of these third world countries third world. And um, so to that question, I guess I would want to ask, how does neoliberalism inform Black women's cultural production um, in the late 20th and early 21st century? So what have you seen um, across these novels between African-American and the Caribbean? Right, and so a big foundation for the book as well um, is neoliberalism, right? And what you... um, just talked about those SAPs and how it's tied to neoliberalism. So first I want to talk about definitions. So the term neoliberalism carries multiple meanings. So I specified in my book how I'm defining it. And I see neoliberalism as an ideological, political, and economic project. And it spans from deregulated markets to virtually every aspect of people's daily lives, again, whether or not they are aware of it. And neoliberalism emerged as a response. It it, it picked up steam, it gained um, steam in the 1970s, and it emerged as a response to post-World War II legislation and civil rights legislation and the achievements that took place. Um, as a result of those things. And what it does is it blames individual people rather than macro level conditions or systemic racism for the grossly unequal playing fields that exist now. So basically you hear people who will say things like, well, you need to take more personal responsibility. Well, can you really say that a person lacks personal responsibility when they have a full-time job as well as another part-time job, yet they still cannot afford a two-bedroom apartment in the city in which they live in? You know, so there's more to the story that you're not including by solely blaming just that person. And so the highly stratified extremes that we are witnessing today did not come out of the blue. There are laws and policies that have facilitated these extremes in class over time, especially with neoliberalism beginning in the 1970s. And so societies essentially are making the choice to continue with destructive practices. And so they can make the choice again to stop these practices Specifically, you know, governments can start choosing to require paid sick leave to uh, to um, raise the minimum wage, to provide more affordable health care, to ensure that basic services are there for everyone, for example. And so my book is um, urging us to shine a brighter light on these wider constraints that limit the choices of people of African descent because there are long-term consequences for this structural discrimination that Black people the world over have been dealing with for generations. 
And I, I, you did have a sentence that said, um, you know, well, we just have to work hard enough. I highlighted that, like, you know, there was gold in there <laughs> because I was like, yes, this is exactly what it is. It's not just about working hard enough. You know, what's the point of working hard enough when the systems continue to choose to operate the way that they do? And had, that's why these, these novels are just, it's, this is why I love literature. Once again, <laughs> they tell us, you know, what the issues are and how we, another thing I really enjoyed about your book is you put, you cast a wide net as to how we should look at class. So you're, we're not just looking at class in this narrow, neat package, but essentially how these novels will essentially make us look at our society and be like, maybe we should rethink how we look at maternity leave. Um, so if somebody produced a whole human being, maybe they shouldn't go back to work, um, you know, as soon as possible, because for so many reasons, and it's it's not about the individual, but about looking at these systems. So I, I just really appreciated um, this dive of how class intersects with so many other uh, categories as to why things are the way they are. And like for possibly like a speculative thing as well as what we can do in the future um, and how possibly the black dollar can help, <laughs> you know, the circulation of the black dollar. So I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Thank it's you. interesting, um, Fatima, that you mentioned that because in uh, uh, Mill Hodges' Crick Rap Monkey, one Beatrice mentions her daughter, she says, the darker you are, the harder you have to work. So it's interesting also that um, you mentioned that, that notion of, oh, working harder. But some of these characters internalize that mindset and you see it coming out. And it's a reflection of the society and that belief. And we see, again, intersections of race, class, colors, but particularly in the Anglophone Caribbean. So it's interesting to highlight that. Right. And I want to just highlight quickly what you just said for people who are listening. Um, when a character is telling her daughter, if you're darker, you have to work harder that she's talking about the skin tone. So they're all black people, but it's talking about colorism or what is sometimes um, described as shadeism. So it's talking about the different skin tones of black people. And that's unfortunate. I discussed that in the book as well, that unfortunately to this very day, um, people's outcomes can be different um, they're all black, but based upon the skin tone, um, if it's lighter, so you may get more exposure to opportunities versus being of a darker skin tone, um, depending upon where you live. So that's a big reality. It's an ugly truth, you know, but I explore that in the book too. That's definitely linked to um, inequality. And just to comment on that, um, it reminded me, Conde has uh, a novel where she does touch a little about that, the Crossing the Mangroves. I do not know if you remember the school teacher who was darker than the rest <laughs> of the other characters and how she had to work twice as hard, which she said. You know, so it's like these, me like the sentences are there and then the yeah. plot moves on, but it tells us a lot about you know, how we look at society. But just to speak about, 
I guess the entire family, if we could say, put it that way. You mentioned how literary artists use male and female protagonists in various ways, but ultimately the focus is not only on Black women and girls, but also on Black men and boys. So can you talk a little to how these authors discuss what is at stake for the entire family um, in the absence of class justice? Right. And so I really like your question because I note that um, phrasing in my book because that is um, Black feminism, right? Black Black feminism, excuse me, is not just focused on women and girls, right? It is focused on all genders. It's focused on the Black communities um, within our various societies because Black feminism wants progress for all of us. And even um, of those that are outside of our community, we want um, the the living standards of human beings to be better. And so then when we tie into um, this issue of class justice, you know, my research reveals that these contemporary writers and their fictive personas have shifted from demonstrations or simple demonstrations of anxiety concerning class issues to now showing portrayals of urgency um, concerning the state of class affairs among Blacks. And so the more recent fiction reveals severe repercussions of um, interracial class antagonism and worsening ramifications for people of African descent in general from the growing class gaps in our global society. So you see an increase in things like death by avenues such as suicide, murder, drug abuse, and or imprisonment. These are um, topics or subjects that are featured and a number of these narratives and the writers exhibit a critical understanding of the effects of systemic inequalities. And I wanted to note too that, you know, a book on this topic and um, on this discussion and these topics, it highlights the interdisciplinary nature of um, Black feminism of, uh, and my book itself is interdisciplinary. Um, and I use scholarship from different disciplines and that those the scholarship from other disciplines um, influence my work um, greatly. And so you have Africana studies, literary studies, working class studies, women's studies, history, anthropology, sociology and economics. You know, so my book really benefits from the scholarship from a wide array of fields because of the topics that these literary artists are exploring in the work. So yeah, I think that the literary artists are showing us that in order to achieve class justice, that we need a multi-pronged approach, you know, not just one avenue to do it. And so I really like that. And I wanted to highlight that. Um, so talking about highlighting these inequalities, I thought of the fact that your book, your project proposes 
the possibility um, of sort of resolving perhaps these class issues. So you examine the injustices and inequalities of the 20th and early 21st centuries in the US and the Caribbean, but you also look forward to a better world. You write that a cross-class relationship trope in the fiction under consideration here advocates for people to see themselves and others in different ways and to imagine new ways of thinking to help generate solutions to inequalities. Mind shifts can lead to greater advocacy for structural changes. So how do these Black diasporic writers propose alternate ways of thinking about injustices and inequalities in the 20th and early 21st centuries? Where I just want to clarify that you're asking, like, how how do these writers propose alternate ways of like thinking about injustices and inequalities in this time period, right? In 20th and um, early 21st centuries. Yeah, I really like that question because I, I like I said, I write this in my book and I definitely include it in my epilogue, you know, like with an exclamation point, so to speak, that these writers are helping us to imagine new worlds and the imagination matters as we think about new ways to address these long-standing and simultaneously evolving issues so as we said a little while ago you know the pandemic simply uncovered a lot of these um inequalities um or inequities and disparities that were already there and um, something that I like from um, the Black Lives Matter movement or the movement for Black Lives, also called that, a rallying call for the movement is to remember the importance of the imagination because everything that is in existence right now was once imagined. So if we're trying to make progress on this issue, why are we not, you know, um, focusing on the importance of the imagination. And so class interruptions demonstrates how literary artists are imagining well-functioning and just socioeconomic systems where people's basic needs are met, no matter the intersections of their makeup, right? Pulling in the intersectionality is key to the entire book. And they are encouraging us to use our imaginations. We are not in a post-class world, which is what I um, say in my book. You know, class isn't over. We aren't past that. Like some people like to say, we're in a post-racial um, world. No, we're not. Race still very much so matters. And, and class matters. And it's crucial that we work to lessen the negative impacts on the life chances of people who are often called working class, low income, working poor, inner city and lower class, for example. Significantly, we need to be committed to um, not only imagining, but then building the world anew and, and not as it was before the pandemic days. Yes, And I do like to, I do wanna say that I really do like how um, just on page four of the book, you have a picture of, you know, um, the the pandemic picture of people in their masks. And I was like, this is really nice. And I guess what made you include that picture? 
Um, yeah, yeah. So I start off the book with Miami, Florida. So yeah. just like I started off this podcast, like again, I cannot move past the reality that it was growing up in Miami, Florida, where all of this came to my little young mind, right? <laughs> and so um, during the pandemic, Florida, Miami in particular, became one of the earlier hot spots. That's what we were calling it then for where um, people were just getting it left and right and dying left and right. And I remember I was like horrified because my family in Miami is very, very large. I come from a very large family. And so I was very concerned, you know, about death for people who I love. And so, of course, I started paying more attention and those images, I wanted to include two images from the Associated Press. They were pictures of um, people in Miami, Florida, specifically in this particular black area of Miami, Florida. They turned this large stadium in that area into a COVID testing site. And so they would have long lines of people um, in this neighborhood trying to get tested. And I wanted to show those images. And specifically, I chose images that had Black COVID workers. So seeing Black people in a different light, seeing Black people as doctors, as nurses who were on the front line helping other Black people and other people, of course, of all races during this time. So that was important to me to bring this image of something that is so um something something that's so central to that black neighborhood that huge stadium where stadiums like uh the miami dolphins played and big concerts and things like that was turned into a COVID testing site and so i wanted to just highlight and bring it home to how a lot of these disparities that we're talking about dealing with class how this is real and how these things are connected to and have been highlighted by um, the pandemic. Well, thank you. Cause it, I really appreciate that. It definitely, um, it brought it home and made it very real, something that's very relevant to the times. Another thing I wanted to discuss is um, the concept of feminization of poverty that you put forward. So can you talk to us a little about that? Yeah, so I actually talked about that a little bit in the beginning when I was talking about why I chose to focus on women writers, because you know how people will actually, well, um, don't you want to talk about male writers who discuss this? And I do want to note that there are, I did find some works where um, Black male writers include this trope, right, that I've coined coined the cross-class relationship trope. But I wanted to focus on women. I wanted to focus on women because of this concept of the feminization of poverty, which means that women are the ones making up the majority of the disenfranchised across the world. And so this particular concept um, or phrasing was coined by the scholar Diana Peirce. And she's in the area of like sociology and social work. And some of her um, key works that are often highlighted, one is called The Feminization of Poverty, and the subtitle is like Women, Work, and Welfare. Um, Another one is called The Feminization of Ghetto Poverty. And so that was my 
just one of my key justifications because I wanted to know, given the circumstances of women um, around the world, you know, do women writers have um, any particular commentary about these um, inequalities that are associated with class? And so that's why I wanted to um, put that focus there. Well, I guess I, I had a question. I was thinking through the notion of language because um, as a comparativist, I'm always thinking about linguistic groupings. And I was thinking about language, particularly in the Anglophone Caribbean and how language, of course, you know, the Creole language is popular language in the Caribbean. So I was looking at the role of language and perhaps being a bridge to cross-class cross relationships or a barrier to because looking at characters such as Tanti and Beatrice, they speak different languages in that, that text. So I'm looking at how do you see perhaps code switching, language being part of this cross-class relationship trope? Right, definitely much so. So within the book, I explore language. I explore language. And just as you said, but language can be um, a bridge or it could be a barrier, right? Um, because um, if a character is from um, a certain group and they're using Creole or they're using slang. So this is not just uh, the Carib uh, an issue with the, among the Caribbean um, literary works, but also the African-American literary works, right? Where um, maybe the people are not using what is considered to be standard English, right? And so how that is perceived and how people think that, oh, that's a reflection of um, your class background, the way you speak. So language is very important. And I discuss language in a few of the chapters um, in the book amongst both the uh, Caribbean and African-American writers. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much. So while you've been talking about, you know, the arguments you make throughout the book, I've kind of related this and please correct me if I'm wrong, but you're this book seems to really link itself perfectly around the discussion of Roe versus Wade. Um, how do you think, do you think those two discourses in terms of class and how women's bodies can be controlled, <laughs> um, you know, depending on the class that they're in by others? So how do you... How do you think I'm literally coming up with this question as I'm talking to you? But like, that was like this because you were speaking, and I'm like, this really reminds me of so many of the discourses around Roe versus Wade. And class is a factor as to the decisions that are being made by people who could be for either or or in between. What do you think? Right. So I actually was um, recently interviewed by um, a new source here in town about um, my perspectives on the overturning of, of this Roe v. Wade. And so Roe v. Wade is not just a class issue. Roe v. Wade itself is intersectional because, first of all, let's look at the uh, maternal mortality rate of black women. And specifically, obviously, we're talking about the United States with Roe v. Wade, right? Um, and the the black um, black women's maternal mortality rate is much, much, much higher than white women's. So you have this racial piece when it comes to maternal mortality altogether, 
And then you have the class dynamic that's a part of it as well. And one big thing that I really like when I read a part of the dissenting um, justices, those who was like um, Sonia Sotomayor and those who um, were opposed to this overturning is that, you know, they noted that um, people with means, people with money, they're going to find ways to get abortions, safe abortions. It's the people who don't have the money, who don't have access to resources, who they too are going to have abortions, but just not safe abortions. And those abortions may actually kill them as well. So I feel like that Roe v. Wade is literally talking about the very lives of um, not just black people, but um, BIPOC, you know, that, that, issue of Roe v. Wade is so contentious for so many reasons. And so I didn't even bring in the religious piece um, that people are using to support why it's um, wrong or why it should not be done and things like that. But that case spot on, that is directly linked to a lot of class issues. And you have to think of, of greater things too, like somebody who is... Um, who already has a couple of children and say they find out that they're impregnated with a child who could never, um, that a child that could never fend for, for itself, you know? And so they may want, feel like, okay, the best decision is to terminate this pregnancy or doctors are saying that things aren't going well with this pregnancy and it will be in my best interest um, to terminate it. But okay, what, what happens? Uh, I couldn't afford it if I chose to go forward with this. And then we don't have access to other resources. Like, are you going to provide dis an increase in disability resources? Are you going to um, provide increased child care um, resources? Are you going to do something to reduce the price, the cost, excuse me, of child care? There are so many things related to money and, and class when it comes to Roe v. Wade. So your question is directly on point. Yes, thank you for um, talking about that. And it's, it's just very important. And it there's so many novels, at least from the Francophone perspective that I can think of, where class and family life and this the, the feminization of poverty of or um, Black feminism is rooted <laughs> and intersected. And it's definitely, definitely defined by class. So um, it's, yeah, so thank you for that. Now, while you were writing this book, I don't know if you had like um, a reader in mind, <laughs> you know, um, but did you have a sort of um, an imagination of what this reader would be and what they would want to take away from your book? Um, if they want, if you wanted them to walk away with like new ideas, orientations, um, new curiosities. Or maybe, you know, shake them and piss them off <laughs> because I'm sure some I was reading this and like somebody's gonna be pissed, which is good. You should work harder, actually. <laughs> and it's like, okay, we'll we'll see what that does in you know, considering all these arguments you put forth. But um what what did you have in mind of what you would want readers to take away from your book? Yeah, definitely. So I want people 
reading my book to recognize the significance of paying more attention to the role of class, um, paying more attention to the role of class and people's lived experiences. So if it took you getting angry to pay more attention to class, <laughs> then I'm all for it, right? But um, that certainly wasn't the goal to, to make you angry. The goal was to make you become more enlightened. And so if angry was that avenue for you, then so be it. And I think that the book can be valuable to um, a wide audience. So whether um, you are an activist or community organizer or you're somebody um, working on public policy, I just feel like the book is for anybody that's interested in eliminating inequalities and learning more about them. And I think that it's important that people from different walks of life be knowledgeable about inequalities and committed to reducing them. Or we run the risk of reinforcing inequalities and so I think that having a diverse collective working towards similar goals aimed at enhancing people's um, quality of life, I think that that is um, a necessary and encouraging part of the larger fight for full liberation. And I'm hoping that, you know, readers will want to um, become a part of that. And most importantly, I hope people see class interruptions as the solution-oriented and forward-looking book that it is, and that they are inspired to reimagine our current realities. So the book urges us to practice our class consciousness, even if the impact is scattered and doesn't necessarily or directly end in policy overhauls, right? So anybody that's interested in eliminating inequalities, learning more about it, you want to be a part of it, or you want to be enlightened about it, you know, I want, I want, that's the audience member that I'm really happy about. I'm happy to get attention of. And I feel that we need to stop shaming people for their circumstances. Um, we need to stop shaming people for their circumstances that stem from structural inequality. So it's going back to that neoliberalism piece there. And I'm hoping that the reader is more enlightened about that um, as well. Um, I, I think um, the idea of, you know, thinking about the shame associated with being of a certain social class. And I think dog heart. I think of Macaulay and that text dog heart. You see that. You see the character going by the standpipe. I mean, for people who are not familiar in the Caribbean, there's a standpipe where people who are poorer, there's water outside, they fill up buckets, and that standpipe life is part of, you know, um, the, the impoverished life that they live. And there's a lot of shame attached to that. And some people may not want to speak about it. And I think I, I heard an interview where McCauley talks about the fact that she had to tread lightly there because it's such a sensitive issue. Because there is so much shame associated with it. And I think that shame that you mentioned is something that is so important in eradicating these, in these inequalities because so many of us 
are sort of overwhelmed by feelings of shame because you belong to a certain social class. And that is evident. And we have to remove that shame, I guess, that's associated with being impoverished or even being wealthy. So you mentioned that. I think that's really important to highlight. So. Yeah, thank you for that. I agree wholeheartedly. That's why I specifically note um, about class shame in the book. Yeah. Thank you for that note, um, you know, Dr. Allen. And I agree. It's okay. So now that it's shame, what do we do about it? I think that's what it is. And it's I kind of, while you were speaking, I thought of also was um, during the pandemic. I feel like we're still in it. So I cannot say it's ended, of course. Um, when people felt shame to disclose if they were positive, right? So it's this shame that we have to tackle. And it's like, well, what do you do afterwards? Do you just hide it and pretend like it's not there and it doesn't exist? Um, Or do we, like you said, bringing it to the consciousness makes you want to do something about it, or at least now you know. And I'm a big proponent of when you know something, it's hard to unknow it. You may try to ignore it, but now you know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right, right. I agree with that, definitely. So to bring that question back to you, Dr. Brooks, how did um, this project leave you? Did it leave you exhausted? Did it leave you (laughs) into delving into new um, realms and opportunities? Um, How did you know, writing this book leave you? Yeah, I'm very happy about the book. Remember I said that this is not just a professional endeavor, but it's very personal, very personal for me. So I enjoyed being able to uncover so many nuggets, right? And as you said earlier um, about how you see some of these things, some of these things in the novels, but You don't see it being explored in detail in some of the scholarship on the work. And so I was very grateful and privileged to have that opportunity to uncover nuggets and to explore things further and to dive deeper. And, you know, some other interests actually came out of um, my, my researching. Like, for instance, I became more interested in environmental injustices. And, you know, that's something that I never or or environmental racism, what some people also call it. That's something I never thought that I would really be into. I wouldn't necessarily call myself a person who was really big on the environment. But guess what? I started to notice how why is it that the working class communities are treated essentially like garbage pails where you have um, literally pollutants being dumped in these neighborhoods, both within the United States and other nations, and how some even some even um, developed nations dump their trash into lesser developed nations. Um, so, and how these issues cause health problems and cancer and developmental delays in these Black children or um, children who are in these um, particular community. And so I'm focusing on Black. That's why I said that. Premature deaths even, right? And so this is something, a topic that is very much so related to class. And I did not know that before going into the discussion. And, you know, once I started to think about that, I went back to thinking about my childhood days in Miami, right? And I do remember there being like a a dump 
in this, we called them dumps, um, but it was just like a, a small area where everybody would dump um, like large trash items. So not your standard um, garbage bag from your kitchen. Like, yeah, there was a garbage man who came around the community getting those bags, but larger things that couldn't fit in a garbage truck. There was a, like a dump. And I remember that that dump was right next to a canal, a small body of water. And do you know that we used to fish, go fishing in that canal? So you have this dump and the mess in the dump that's running over into this canal. And we are eating the fish from this canal. And do you know today there are no fish in that canal, in that, in that body of water there? And the fish had long been gone. And I, once I became more aware about, like, think about it, that dump is right next to that water. Do you not see the connection there? And do you know today that um, the community has shut that dump down? It no longer exists. And guess what? They didn't build over it. They didn't put grass to try to grow grass over it. It's just a vacant lot. And I said, you know, I should contact the mayor to ask the mayor, why is that vacant? Is it because of pollutants on that ground still there on that, on that ground in that area that nothing else, it would, wouldn't be safe to put something else over that? So these are things that I would have never really thought about. But yet that dump in particular was a regular part of my childhood. Um and so it makes me, this project too made me want to focus on what is that end result if we just never, um, never get to the bottom of class issues, if we never try to enhance people's class conditions. Well, a lot of people will die. Death is the end of that road, right? And so my next book project is actually on Black death. Black death, people of African descent and death. And I'm looking at um, life writing. You know, life writing includes things like um, memoirs, autobiography, um, um, journal entries and things like that. But I'm looking at life writing and Black death. So Black death through the lens of life writing, that is the focus of my next book project. Sounds really exciting. Just the thought of just looking at a memoir in different form. How the form is connected to the reality, the lived reality of these authors too. I think that's particularly interesting. So thanks for sharing. Yes. Thank you all. Thank you all so much for these great questions. I really love them. Yes. And I love to be able to share, you know, like I love Miami. I'm a Miami person through and through. And so I love um, being able to weave bits and pieces of my life um, to the research. So, you know, this isn't just some science project that I put up on a desk, say, hey, let's do this, which is what some scholars do. But for me, this is a really a matter of life and death for people who I care about, for people who look just like me, right? And so um, I'm happy to share about this topic at any time. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much. And thank you for the environmental, um, you know, uh, racism bit at the end. I was just pulling up a book that's on my reading list. It's called The Different Shades of Green, African Literature, Environmental Justice and Political Ecology by uh, Byron. I never meant to get into environmental justice, but once again, everything is interconnected. And then I ran down this <laughs> a rabbit hole if, on a bibliography list, and I was like, oh, okay, I don't know how I find myself here. But I love how you brought it together. And your next project, I think, will do so much more intersectional work, which we will be so happy <laughs> to have you back on um, to talk about. So thank you so much, Dr. Brooks. <laughs> Thank you all so much again. I really appreciate it. Yes, I enjoyed the conversation. It was so easy to talk to you. It just felt as though naturally talking about real life experiences of um, African Americans and people of African descent. So that's so important. So thank you. Thank you.